Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. Um, we are continuing the series that we started last week where we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the next, uh, really throughout the summer. And if you remember last week, we talked uh, about the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Mount. Uh, if you look throughout the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> you'll see a number of important scenes where Jesus uh, is on a mountain and something really important about him is revealed. Whether you're talking about the Mount of Transfiguration or the very last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus uh, sends his disciples out on what we call the Great Commission, they are on a mountain and the disciples worship him on that mountain as Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's like as you read through these, you see the unparalleled identity and authority of Jesus equal only to God. And so you learn these incredible things about him. But the first couple times Jesus goes on a mountain, there's an important contrast taking place. In Matthew 4, Jesus goes up on a mountain with Satan, and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I will give you all of you can rule as king over every kingdom of earth if you will fall down and worship me. Satan has the authority to bestow that upon him. And Jesus says no. Jesus, in essence, rejects ruling the kingdoms of the earth. And he comes back down that mountain in Matthew 4. Two, in Matthew 5, go up on another mountain and present a different kind of kingdom. There's an intentional contrast here between the ways of the kingdoms of this earth and the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom of heaven. And so in Matthew 5, we get the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the, the guidebook, the instructions, the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. It's like if you look at the foundational documents of a nation, you can see what is most vital and most important to that nation. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is the first major speech in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and this is what it looks like, and this is how you live into it, and this is how you live as part of that kingdom. As a matter of fact, the very first phrase in the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything he's going to say from that point forward is a description of that kingdom of heaven and how to live in it. If you just look at the phrase kingdom or kingdom of heaven throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that it is the central idea of every major topic that Jesus brings up. He will call his disciples right in the middle of the sermon to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He will, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, the most famous prayer you'll ever read, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea of the kingdom is not to go and dominate the other nations and to grow a strong economy and a powerful military and to have autonomy and authority and all of that. That's what the kingdoms of the earth tend to do. The kingdom of, the he of heaven is for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our primary mission. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is showing us. It's showing us the difficult task of being a people of light, of being a people who are salt, of being a people who live with heaven's reign in our hearts and in our lives and in our communities now. And when we do that, you will look different. If you are actually able to give people a glimpse of heaven here in a world of darkness, you will look like light amongst darkness. You will look like salt of the earth. You will look like a city set on a hill because heaven is a little bit different. <laughs> the way God's will is done in heaven 
you don't see a lot of the same plagues and problems that you see on earth. And so among his people, we're giving an offering a, a glimpse of that. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, this idea of heaven and earth, they come together in Jesus when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sends his disciples to all of the nations, to all those kingdoms of the earth that Satan offered Jesus that he rejected. He says, no, I'm not going to reign in those kingdoms that way. I'm going to have all authority in heaven and on earth, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to make followers among people of every nation of earth. And so the Sermon on the Mount is showing what followers of Jesus will look like throughout the world as they submit to his authority far and above anyone else or anything else. And he begins this sermon in a unique, powerful, shocking, and and an incredible way. He begins it not with a list of commands, but with a list of blessings. And the blessings that Jesus offers to those around him they are not what you would ordinarily think of as, um, as the blessings to, you know, who rules in the kingdoms of men. These are not words spoken to the rich and powerful. They're not words spoken to those who have the respect and admiration of all of their peers. They're actually the words spoken to those who would most often be neglected and rejected by the kingdoms of this world. They're the words spoken to those who would often be the least important and the least prominent in the kingdoms of men. And Jesus says, you guys are the truly blessed ones. You are the fortunate ones. You are the happy ones. You are the ones upon whom I'm going uh, and with whom I'm going to build my kingdom. And it's really a surprising thing. You can imagine imagine walking through um, the streets of some city and finding uh, people who are small, people who are weak people who are sick and calling them to you and saying, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to build a different kind of football team. And I'm going to use the old and the young and the weak and the sickly and the slow and those who are out of shape. And we're going to go and we're going to defeat the Philadelphia Eagles or the Tennessee Titans or whoever you want to defeat. Um, We're going to use the least expected and least likely group in the world to become the greatest. What Jesus is doing is in a world of the Roman Empire, where the rich and the powerful and the elite and the military, they have their kingdom and everyone lives in fear and in dread and in awe of that kingdom. He's going to find not the rich and powerful, but the mourners, the persecuted, the meek, the ignored, the rejected, the poor in spirit. And he's going to say, you guys are the foundation of the greatest kingdom this world has ever seen. You guys matter. You guys are the ones who are going to have preeminence among my people. You are the ones who are truly blessed and who are truly fortunate. We say blessed are those who and blessed are those who. And we usually translate uh, this word for the Beatitudes as blessed. But we don't always know. One thing that's interesting is just the fact that we always say blessed. Uh, it's kind of interesting how, uh, how tradition plays a role in like the way that we speak and everything. It's just the word blessed. It's not like a different word. Uh, but when we're saying here, we always say blessed are thee and blessed are thee. Um, but um, there are different ways people translate this. Some people translate it as happy. And uh, there, there's, I think that's, there's something to that, but uh, I, I don't know that that's a, a great, uh, you know, I don't know if that fully covers the idea of it. I like some of the translations like flourishing or fortunate maybe, but I think flourishing is a good one because it really captures the shock value of it. Flourishing 
are those who are, uh, who are persecuted. You would think, wait, really? It's like with each of these, you're supposed to have a moment where you say, wait, really? That's, that's who you're saying? If you were to ask yourself, who has the good life in the world around us? Who really has it all? Who's living life as it's intended to be? You might look at the rich and the famous. You might look at the movie stars. You might look at the great athlete. They have their health. They have wealth. The people want to be with them. People like them and all of that stuff. But what Jesus is going to say is, like everything else in his kingdom, he's going to flip our common ideas of what really matters upside down, and he's going to say, no, I'm going to show you who truly is flourishing in the kingdom of heaven, who's truly flourishing in the eyes of God. And he looks at the crowds and he says, it's you guys. Now, remember who these crowds are. Remember where they came from. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, we see the crowds developing that Jesus is going to be speaking to. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him those who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs or demon-possessed people, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he began to teach. Who are these crowds? They are the people who are most in need, who have not found answers in the world around them. They're the people who are suffering with their health and the people who are suffering spiritually and people who might be outcasts from society and people who uh, would be rejected. And, and, and they are people who are needing something more than what the world is offering them now. And they're finding it in Jesus. And when Jesus sees these people, he doesn't see the people who are truly self-sufficient, who don't have need of anything else. They're not usually the ones who came to Jesus. He sees the people who are longing for something better. And he sees those who, on their own, they, they haven't found it. And he says, you guys who are longing for something better are the ones who are going to be the foundation of what I'm going to build. You're the ones who are going to be the light of the world. And that's quite a phrase to tell them that they're going to be the light of the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And that's something that I can get on board with, you know? Uh, I say, okay, Jesus, you're a great light of the world. I wish, I wish all could look to you. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And he's saying it to these people who, they've never been the ones to stand out before. They're the ones who everyone look, overlooks and ignores. And yet he's saying, you're the ones who the rest of the world needs to see, to learn what truth and life is really all about. And so it puts quite a, a, a challenge before them, but at the same time, it shows the value of every person from the least to the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, he begins, as I said, with a list of blessings, not a list of commands. As you read through this, he's not telling you you better mourn, and you better be persecuted, and you better be all of these things. Instead, what he's saying is when you look at your life and you see this type of suffering going on, or you see these types of characteristics, know that you are the ones who are truly flourishing in God's kingdom. 
And the ways that he says it are quite unique. What I want to do right at the beginning is look a little bit at the structure of these Beatitudes and then quickly go through each one and try to catch a glimpse of what Jesus is trying to communicate um, with them before we bring our lesson to a close. But as you look at the structure of them, the first and the last are present tense promises about uh, what, who, who the kingdom of heaven is for. So if you look at verse 3, the first beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like right now, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And if you look at verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he begins each beatitude with a a blessing pronounced upon somebody, and then he ends each one with a promise or a statement uh, about about that person, about what that blessing is. And the first and the last one are the same, that yours is right now the kingdom of heaven. So who belong, who, to whom does the kingdom of heaven belong? The poor in spirit and those who are being persecuted. And if you ask yourself, well, who are the poor in spirit? That's an important question, and we'll talk about that for, for a, a second. But I think that one of the reasons these are bookends for the Beatitudes is because when you look at all of the other ones, you're getting a pretty good example of who the poor in spirit are And you're also getting a pretty good picture of who the people who will be persecuted are. Uh, The rest of these Beatitudes, I think, are kind of defined by the two on the end that say, yours is the kingdom of heaven. All of the Beatitudes in the middle, they're not present tense saying that yours right now is the kingdom of heaven. But they're actually future promises. They're future tense and they're promises about something that will be in store for you as you go through the difficulties of this life. And in essence, what they're doing is what you feel like you're lacking now, a day is coming when that will be satisfied. What you're feeling now that is less than what it should be, a day is coming when it will be greater than you ever imagined. So if you are mourning now, you're blessed because a day is coming when you will be comforted. God sees your pain in your mourning and you will be comforted. If you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness now, a day is coming When you will be satisfied and filled, you'll have exactly what you're longing for. To those who are peacemakers now, you might be despised and rejected, but you will be called sons of God. That will eventually be your designation and your description. For all of these in the middle, it's a promise that what you're going through now is worth it in the kingdom of heaven. Because a great day is coming when God will right so many of the wrongs that you are now facing. After mentioning in verse 10, the blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, he then goes on to elaborate on that one a little bit more. And a couple things happen with this elaboration. He, he goes back to de- continue to describe the, ble- the persecuted blessed, and he describes uh, how they are blessed. But he makes a switch from talking about those, like the third person. All of these are third person. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst. Two, in verse 11, he switches to say, And blessed are you when people speak, uh, insult you or persecute you uh, and falsely say all manner of evil against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. As he makes the conclusion of his Beatitudes and he moves to the rest of the sermon, he, speaks, he transitions from speaking about those, and you might think of yourself in that category, to specifically you. And then he's going to say, And you are the salt of the earth. 
And you are the light of the world. And for the rest of the sermon, he's going to focus not just on them and those and they out there, but very much he's going to center it on you. So you can see how his words of blessing to those then become words of application to you. And so this is a way of drawing the readers from just the crowds to the people that Jesus is intimately challenging within his kingdom. So it's a words of blessing to them and words of application to you. Uh, And so you go through the sermon and you see, I think, some powerful ideas, but I love the way that he starts by taking those who would be unimportant and showing them how important they are. Those who are suffering and promising them something greater. Those who feel as though they are unimportant and saying that actually yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then showing how his message is for you. My message is for you and, and it's not for just the most important people or those on the outside. You matter in this thing, and you have a role to play in this thing, and God's kingdom on earth will be seen in you. It's a beautiful message, and it's a way of demonstrating the universality and the individuality of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But as we go through verse 3, let's start looking at some of the, the specific Beatitudes and seeing what we can learn from them. The first one is kind of a unique phrase um, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, It's difficult to know exactly what he means there. Most people take it as something like humble, and I think that's probably pretty close, pretty good uh, description of it. Um, But he says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I think the opposite of poor in spirit, and you actually do see this uh, type of phrase used a couple of places in the Old Testament. There are those who are, uh, consider themselves to be great in spirit, or who are arrogant in spirit. And I think that poor in spirit would be basically the reverse of that. I've heard some people liken this phrase to talking about those who when Babylon came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and took a bunch of people captive to go live in Babylon, they took on the first wave the most important, the prestigious, the smart, the intelligent, the handsome, the useful, like Daniel and his friends. And then they came in a couple more waves and they took pretty much everyone else who had some use or some value. But the people who were decrepit or the people who were uh, uh, seen as too sickly or people who were injured or people who uh, were of no use, they were, were left behind. Not everyone was taken. And if you're the type of person who an invading army comes in and they take everything that could possibly be valuable to them and they leave you, well, not that you want to be taken, but it's a little bit of an insult, you know? It's like, hey. Uh, but that person who's left behind would be the person considered the poor in spirit. The person who the rest of the world sees as offering of nothing. They're just, who they are is poverty. Who they are is a burden. And we don't need you to be a part of us. Um, Jesus says, when the world looks at you like that, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He moves on from there in verse 4, when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, He doesn't exactly tell us what they're mourning about. We can imagine a lot of things, I think, that someone might be mourning about. Very, uh, you know, literally mourning the loss of a loved one uh, is something that uh, that people mourn about. Um, People might mourn when they look at the world around them and they see so much injustice and evil and they long for something better. Uh, People might mourn at, uh, say, the, the loss of something very valuable to them. For example, 
The idea of mourning and being comforted by God that we see right here is how the book of Isaiah ends. In Isaiah 66, 13, and the verses surrounding that, you have people mourning over the city of Jerusalem that has been utterly destroyed. And God promises that as a mother comforts his, uh, her children and nurses her children, so God will be like a comforting, loving mother to us. And God will comfort us in, in a way that, uh, that only a mother can. And, and you see this powerful image of God not as necessarily the avenger who's going to go out and destroy our enemies, but God is the comforter who holds us close and loves us as we go through pay, periods of, of turmoil and sorrow And that's what Jesus promises here. You might be mourning now, but a day is coming where you will have comfort from a source unlike any other. God himself will be your source of comfort. In verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek or the gentle or the humble. You might have a couple of different words there. For they shall inherit the earth. The thing that's interesting about this beatitude is it does not originate with Jesus. This is actually a quotation from Psalm 37 and verse 11. And in Psalm 37, there's a recurring phrase throughout that psalm about how the certain group of people will inherit the land or inherit the earth. And the people who will are the people who are the humble or the, the meek. And they are contrasted with who are called the wicked or the evildoers throughout that whole psalm. And those who inherit the land are those who have given up uh, anger and wrath. Those who inherit the land are those who uh, wait on the Lord. They are those who practice righteousness. They are those who have given up violence and hatred. On the other hand, the evildoers are those who bend the bow and carry the sword. They are those who destroy and who kill. And you have this strong contrast between different types of people. And the thing that is so ironic about it is if you look at the kingdoms of the earth, like the ones that Satan was offering to Jesus in in the chapter before this one, How is it that uh, nations of this earth inherit the land? How do they get the land? They get their military and they go out and they kill and they demolish people to get the land. Like that's how they, that's how they uh, accumulate land on the earth. What Jesus is saying is you're not going to be like them. You will inherit the earth. The earth will belong to you, but it's not going to be through dominating your enemies. It'll be through humble, gentle, meek, kind, loving spirit. The meek, the ones who are often rejected, are the ones who will inherit the earth. One of the things that's fascinating about these Beatitudes is, you know, if you're looking for ways to get ahead in this life, they're probably not going to help you very much. If you're wanting to become the CEO, or if you're wanting to become the starting linebacker, and I say, oh, what you need to do is be very meek, and you'll be a great linebacker. Uh, is, you know, it's probably that's not the advice you need or want. That's not going to help you. But for the kingdom of heaven, it's that unexpected way of life that actually does put you first. That's how you inherit the land. It's not by looking at Rome or Persia or Babylon or Egypt. They conquer the land in their own ways. The kingdom of heaven has a different method for inheriting the earth. Uh, as you keep reading verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, this is not the same thing as saying blessed are those who are righteous. It's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it. When I have a lot of food and I'm eating and I'm, you know, enjoying a great meal, I'm not usually right then thinking about how hungry and thirsty I am. I'm filled right then. Uh, People who are self-righteous or consider themselves to already be righteous are not usually hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is something that happens when you recognize your own faults and failures and you're longing for something greater. Or perhaps even not personal righteousness, but this word could also be translated as justice. And people who look at the world around them and they see that people who uh, are being uh, stomped all over and people who are being neglected and mistreated, they look at the crowds and they see these people and they want justice for these people. Jesus is saying when you're hungering and thirsting for that kind of justice, a day is coming. When you will be filled, whether it's your personal level of righteousness or justice in the world around you, a day is coming when justice and righteousness will flow like an ever-flowing stream, uh, Amos 5.24. It's like God will make sure you are filled, so stick with him throughout it. When you get to the next one in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There are quite a few times in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Matthew where Jesus will liken our behavior towards others with God's behavior towards us. For example, he says, if you forgive, then God will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive, then God will not forgive you. If you confess before men, Jesus will confess you before his Father. But if you deny him, you will be denied before the Father. There's a, 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 that, this happens quite a bit. Uh, if you judge... Well, God's going to judge you. And with the judgment you give to others, it will be meted back to you by God. So, so be a merciful judge. And right here, he's saying that exactly that. Be merciful in the way you treat others. If you want God to be merciful to you, you the merciful are the people who receive that. So when you're a person who extends mercy to those who are in hardship and suffering and those who maybe aren't what you feel like they should be, when God sees you as less than you should be, Take comfort in knowing that he'll be merciful to you as well. In verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we think of purity, we often want to think of it in like a, maybe a sexual context or a moral context. Of uh, being, being pure means you don't, uh, you, know, you, you don't mess around or you don't have any premarital relations or anything like that. And I think that, is, that isn't often an aspect of purity. But I think right here, if we want to get... Uh, a better understanding of what Jesus is saying. Think of purity in terms of um, no contaminants, like uh, a purity in, for, in terms of a singular ingredient rather than a bunch of other ingredients added to it. And the person who is pure in heart has a singular focus in life, something that's not diluted, say, in the rest of the sermon, by lust or by wealth or by uh, the, the, the desire for power or all of these different things, by deceit. There are so many things that could get in our way and they could contaminate our focus on life. I think one of the best commentaries on being pure in heart is Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is saying not to stress and worry so much about wealth and about what you'll wear, but rather seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Have a singularity of, of purpose in your heart. Live your life desiring God in the way that he will fulfill that is that you will see God. The person whose desire, more than anything else, isn't contaminated by everything that this world offers, but is content and, and focused on seeing God, will see him. And that day will come. He says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. They're called sons of God because God is a peacemaker. Later on in Matthew 5, he's going to make the same point about the, loving your enemies. Why? Because God causes the rain to fall on the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. If you want to be children of your Father who's in heaven, if you want to be sons of God, you act like him. So why be a peacemaker? Because God is a peacemaker. You know, by the way, 
There are a lot of challenges that we face in this life that can cause us to want to either choose sides and create a greater schism or challenge us to stand in that difficult gap and try to bring peace. And what can often happen when you stand in that difficult gap is in your desire to make peace, you end up getting hated from both sides. And that's when Jesus will say things like, yeah, you might make enemies by being a peacemaker, but love your enemies and pray for them. Even among your enemies, you try to make peace. Even when peacemaking leads to enmity, you strive to make peace within that enmity. Peacemaking is an essential characteristic of the people of God. And it's also a a reminder of what matters most. Can I tell you something I'm really excited about? I'm really excited about some of the, uh, the uh, renovations that we're going to be doing here at the church building. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, what that means for our future. I'm very thankful for the thoughtful and intentional planning that went into it. I am thankful that we have elders who are proactive, and they're not only concerned about today, and they're not only concerned about yesterday, but they're actually concerned about the future and planning and preparing for that. And I think it's going to be great, but I do know that for the next couple of months, there will be some discomfort. Uh, I do know that for the next couple of months, there will be things that make, um, that make uh, our worship experience probably less comfortable and, and less enjoyable. Um, and I know there will be things that we can find to complain about. Certainly there will be. I know there will be things that we wish would have been done differently or we wish we didn't have to do. And I know that we could probably talk about those things. But you know what? I think a peacemaker is someone who even in times of discomfort or frustration or hardship or when things are not the way they want them to be, they're going to try more than anything else to promote peace. And I think that when churches do have some difficulties ahead of them, like we're about to have, um, it's in view of something really good. It's in view of something that is very beneficial. And you could get focused on the momentary frustration And forget about your call to be a peacemaker. But I want to challenge everyone, myself included, um, to emphasize peace over the next couple of months. Even if uh, we have to worship in a different location and we don't get to sit in the seat that we want. And uh, we have to wait in line at the bathroom. Or there's things like that. Try to promote peace. And hopefully it'll pass quickly. And we could all rejoice together uh, when we get to see what's finally accomplished. That's one example. I do think it's one that's important to remember in the days ahead. Uh, But there are many examples of whether it's politics or whatever that can cause us to want to create a schism when God is calling us to create peace. And let's be people of peace. When you are a person of peace, then you are a son of God. Because we serve a God of peace. However, when you try to make peace, there are people who won't appreciate you for it, which is why I think Jesus ends in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When you try to live that way and people hate you for it, that very well may happen, but you can respond with comfort knowing that yours is the kingdom of heaven. You can respond with joy knowing in verse 12 that your reward in heaven is great. So you have a current status as one for whom the kingdom of heaven is given. You also have a future reward in store for you. And in the same way, you can rejoice with the great prophets who you are sharing with through this persecution because they've been through it as well. In fact, Jesus himself, in the greatest example, has been through it as well. And we have a special fellowship with him through suffering as people who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 
Now, you might not think the persecuted, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the merciful, the, those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the gentle, the mourning, and the poor in spirit are the foundation of a great and mighty kingdom. And you might not think that a tiny little mustard seed is the, the foundation or the beginning of the largest plant in the garden. But the kingdom of heaven can surprise you. Keep coming back and we'll see the ways that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of heaven will surprise you. It'll change your view of reality. It'll change your view of yourself. It'll change your view of God. And I think for the better. If there's anyone here this morning who would like the prayers of the church or would like to become a a, a Christian, uh, please let that be known. We'd be happy to study with you and encourage you in any way that we can. If you have a need, please let it be known and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.